Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. So some of you will naturally be uh, suffering some significant withdrawal mechanisms because you haven't had your Rules to Reality episodes over the last couple of weeks. I apologize. I've been busy writing what's naturally going to be a bestseller. Uh, It's a report on uh, best practice regulation in clinical mental health settings. It'll be available at no good bookstores, um, but it has been keeping me busy. So I wanted to replay an episode with Assistant Professor Camilla Nelson on the family law system. I hope you enjoy it. Um, Thanks so much for being here, um, Professor Nelson. I'm wondering, are you able to uh, tell us a bit about, you know, uh, what regulation means to you or, or, or why that matters to families or people going through the family law system? I actually think that uh, one of the most remarkable things uh, about the family law system is that um, it is almost entirely unregulated. So, um, there are, while, while there are practices and procedures, I mean, the Family Law Act says that um, lawyers have to um, provide prudent advice um, and, and settle cases uh, quickly. Um, it doesn't seem to have uh, very much traction. Um, while the court uses uh, single expert witnesses as a pivotal form of uh, of, uh, deciding a case, um, the law does not regulate the credentials and practices of those single expert witnesses. While the law will turn to private business enterprises um, to conduct supervised contact on court orders, um, it does not regulate the conduct of those private businesses that provide the services. So, for example, just about a year ago, um, there was a a person who started up a child uh, supervision service to make money in the family court. Um, And and this person had uh, his own history of uh, domestic abuse convictions and allegations. Okay. So we're not regulating the conduct of the people that work within the court and perhaps there's a certain assumption that oh this is a superior court therefore Mm. we're inherently accountable Um, so the lack of regulation is um, extremely uh, astonishing Yes, and, and, and I've been fortunate to, um, to read your recent book, Broken um, Children's Parents in the Family Law, uh, Family Courts, sorry, with, um, uh, with your co-author, Catherine Lumby. And, you know, in that book, you detail how the conduct of, you're talking about that lack of regulation and, and how the conduct of judicial officers or, or judges, um, lawyers, um, even independent children's lawyers who are meant to act in the best interests of of a child and represent their views um, and, and even abuses have all gone unchecked and 
Um, I mean, I've kind of raised a number of different people there, but I'm just keen if you can um, let the listeners know what you've seen um, as the consequences of that lack of regulation. Uh, yeah, sure. So I, I think that um, with, let's start with independent children's lawyers. Now, independent children's lawyers um, don't actually work on advocacy principles. Then they don't represent the child's views. Mm, they, re- they represent um, the best interests of the child. So they represent um, what they think is the child's best interest, um, which may or may not include the child's view. Um, so it's what we call a substitute decision maker model of representation, rather than a rights based form of representation. Um, Recently, uh, the state coroner here in New South Wales made an adverse finding against the independent children's lawyer in um, the case of the murders of Jack and Jennifer Edwards by their father. Um, This was a case in which the children, um, who were um, young people really, uh, said to the independent children's lawyer that they did not wish to see his fa- their father because their father had been violent and abusive. Mm. The independent children's lawyer, in representing um, the best interests of those children, um, I use the inverted commas sign there, um, went to tell the judge that the children were in danger of losing their relationship with their father forever Um, that the children's uh, views were probably influenced by the mother. Um, And even though this case eventually was settled between the lawyers, the the transcript makes shuddering, it makes shocking reading the court transcripts in this case, Um, that um, subsequent to the legal action, the father shot both the children um, in their home. Um, it's an astonishing case. It's a shocking case. Um, it's it, it just demonstrates what's wrong um, mm-hmm. when you are not um, taking, you know, yes, this is about law and regulation, so it's a, an mm-hmm. advocacy-based, a rights-based approach. The children's views are a component of the children's best interests, even mm-hmm. if you are using that substitute decision-maker model. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the coroner made an adverse finding against the lawyer in that case. We don't know what um, the uh, Legal Services Commissioner will find um, because certainly, again, that report will go back to the coroner. Um, It's not something that's necessarily going to be made public. Um, And, in fact, uh, most uh, investigations by the Legal Services Commissioner, who the Legal Services Commissioner should be regulating the conduct of lawyers, Okay, Um, and uh, including the way they behave and the fees they charge. Mm. Um, But it is extremely rare for the um, Legal Services Commissioner to take any action. Mm. Um, So there have been cases, uh, for example, where, again, here in New South Wales, um, a judge um, referred um, lawyers, the lawyers, the parties at at the trial, the lawyers, Mm. 
the party's lawyers <laughs> to be investigated by the Legal Services Commissioner, such was the, the judge's um, uh, ire, despair, shock at the conduct of the lawyers in the case. Um, and and uh, once again, there was a sense that they found um, the Legal Services Commissioner said, oh, well, there's no grounds to regulate anything here. Um, so what I think people miss as well when we talk about uh, the justice system and when we talk mm. about the family court, mm. they forget that um, the legal profession is a... a, a profit um centered it is a private business enterprise mm. it's incentivized by profit making mm. um and it's in lawyers interests to say oh the client's always right in fact the interesting thing about um lawyers um when they started deregulating the legal profession in the late 1980s um, before then, lawyers, for example, could not advertise. Um, that would probably be the most prominent change or visible change. Uh, but since it, the, the, the law profession was uh, deregulated, um, lawyers have um, styled themselves more as a business and less as a profession. When I have law students in my class, when I teach them, I have students who actually come and talk about um, talk about the, the the legal business says this, and and I sort of look at them across the lecture theatre and I say, "Don't your professors tell you that law is a profession? When did law become a business?" <laughs> um, but of course, people who practice in law. Um, practice it as a business to, to earn an income. And, and so if you're not talking about um, law as an industry, as an income-generating enterprise, well, quite frankly, you're not talking about the legal system. Mm, yeah. And it does seem like it's this um, kind of, yeah, so you, you're talking about the regulation of behaviour, but then you're also talking about regulation of a market system there that's just gone gone wild. And and one of the things, just going going down one of those threads, one of the things you talk about in the book is just the exorbitant, you talk a lot about how it incentivizes further engagement and litigation, yeah. and just the exorbitant um, prices um, that, that lawyers are charging and, and some of the the fees that, that and the, the terms and the types of fees that they're charging um, people and they, they, they're left with no assets at the end of these processes. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that um, it's not unusual for those situations to materialise. Now, um, very recently, the government has... Um, uh, issued the a report where they have um, asked the court to regulate or manage the kinds of fees that um, lawyers are charging in a more systematic way than, than the court has in the past, because in the past the court just hasn't done anything um, about it. A judge may have uh, said something snappy at, at trial, um, uh, sometimes when you read judgments, it's shocking that they seem to, um, that there is a sense that, um, that the loss of the complete depletion of assets is, is blamed on the parents rather than on the billing practices of lawyers. Um, and, and yet um, we know from um, pro reports 
you know, the Productivity Commission report on access to justice, for example, tells us that justice is out of reach for the majority of Australians, that unless you are um, the bottom 8% who are entitled to legal aid, or you are the, um, or you're so rich, it really doesn't matter, um, you can't, um, most people cannot afford to go to court. Lawyers, this is, a, and it's a joke lawyers often make, lawyers couldn't afford to hire lawyers um, in, in many senses, although I take that back, some of them can. You know. um, so, yeah, you, you have a court system in, in which um, your, your top barrister is going to be charging $20,000 a day, um, and that will be for every day at trial. Um, and, and they will also want 10 days prep time uh, prior to the trial. Um, so that's, that's, that's pretty much your top end in family law. Um, in, in other areas of law, barristers can get up to 30000 a day. Um, with, with, if, if you want to look at the bottom end, um, you, you're not going to get spare change from 3000 a day for a barrister. Um, I, I know one or two people who sit just under 3000 a day, um, but you need a barrister to go to court. Um, and, um, it's, and, and you need to also hire a solicitor before you get a barrister. So not only do you need to pay the barrister's fees, um, you also need to pay the solicitor's fees. Um, so a solicitor's fee um, in, in a private practice is going to range from uh, $350 an hour up to around $650, $750 an hour. Um, and, and at the top end, I know that there are solicitors charging $12,000 a day for court attendance. Um, that's your very, once again, it's, it's your top end. In fact, it's the solicitors rather than barristers who make the most money uh, out, of, um, out of the cases that go to court. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, look, uh, the system is incentivised through profit, um, and, and, and you really need to look at regulating that. Mm. Um, the government in their recent report, and the court has said that it's going to try and patrol it, um, has said that, well, in a property matter, a, a lawyer should no longer be allowed to charge more than 20% of the assets of the family in a property matter. Mm. But look, what family can give up 20% of their assets? So it's mm. 10, mm. They said 10% for either side. Um, and that's only for a property matter, it's not for children's matter. In children's yeah. matters, it's um, it's uh, unregulated, um, and also in the uh, new uh, uh, the recent government report, the number of exceptions to those uh, bills, like the the twenty percent cost cap mm. um, for the family, um, everything that is not involved with the pointy end of litigation, that is mm. sort of interim hearings and trials. Mm. Um, so anything for to mediation or arbitration or any of those sorts of processes um, are exceptions to the cost cap. Yep. So, you know, you sort of read these 
regulations and these proposals for regulations and you you sort of think well you know what's going to happen in 10 years time with this new set of regulations because I terribly cynical. Um, are these new sets of regulations actually offering lawyers a place to hide costs, i.e. Yeah. if you say it was a pre-trial mediation arbitration uh, or something like this, yeah. I, I, I don't have to declare. It's an yeah. exemption. Yeah. So you don't know with the, the so funny and, and I think really interesting thing about regulation, mm. um, if you're a bit of a nerd, <laughs> Well, you're on the right is, podcast, Camilla. Yeah. <laughs> is um is the way it shapes human behavior, um, mm. because or does not shape human behavior. Yeah. That um, sometimes there might be a good intention in the regulation, but human behavior uh, is you, you know changes in in a way to get around it. Yeah. Um, so it's um. It's kind of interesting and, and yet it takes a, a long time and then a lot of information gathering to see, well, what what, what effect did that, that new raft of regulations actually have? Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I, I'm concerned um, that um, despite this um, uh, cap in property matters um, that that we're not going to see, that we're not really going to see change. And and I'm also concerned, well, you know, who's going to patrol this? Who's going to patrol these regulations? Mm. Um, Because, you know, things, judges haven't regulated these things, haven't patrolled, rather, these things in the past. So um, why why do we expect they will be uh, suddenly um, controlled in the future? Um, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. Yeah, and... and um you, you're identifying there that um yeah obviously the the way regulation can shape or, or fail to shape people's lives and um definitely that that market-based system is creating quite perverse incentives uh, one of the other um from reading your book one of the other ways in which that that whole market or system um regulates behavior is the way in which it enmeshes with abuse. Um, uh, you know, my, my reflection sort of reading, um, you know, you, you talk about litigation abuse, which um, some some listeners might or might not be aware of. I'm just interested, how does it, you know, it, it seems to regulate the lives of women and children in a really negative way um, based on, on the way it's playing out now. What's your reflections? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, look, there are... Um, violent perpetrators and abusers who manipulate the legal system in order to coerce and control women and children. The way the law is written again enables this. You, you take a simple you take a simple case uh, about um, contact with a child. Um, if a, um, a mother um, fails to turn up with a child for the court mandated uh, contact or you know the child doesn't make the phone call at nine o'clock in the morning or at nine of eight o'clock at night or whatever the court had ordered okay the only thing the mother has to stop um the other party from taking her to court and dragging her back through court is what is called reasonable excuse Okay, so um, put the shoe on the other foot. 
the uh, father who does not answer the phone at 8.30 at night or who does not turn up to contact with the child gets off scot-free. There's not, no sanction uh, against uh, the father for not showing up, um, but the mother's behaviour at the greatest extreme can be criminalised. Mm. Okay, and we forget that, that there are what we call, we call them quasi-criminal penalties in the family law, but, but you, you can get up, you can be jailed um, uh, for, for, for this sort of, um, uh, you, you know, issues around uh, contempt and, and those sorts of things. Um, so it, the family court has the highest uh, number of what the law calls vexatious litigants. Um, in fact, it has more vexatious litigants than the entirety of every other superior court combined. Um, vexatious litigants, to use the legal terminology, they're, they're people who um, habitually take other people to court. Um, often um, a, a vexatious litigant, or in this case an abusive perpetrator, well, there's not much difference between yeah. an abusive perpetrator and a vexatious litigant, mm. okay, um, because what you find in the family court um, is the perpetrator is taking the other party to court in order um, to exert control um, mm. as a form of abuse in order particularly to damage them economically, financially, and to impose um, distress on the other side. So in a sense that um, the law allows the perpetrator to continue to abuse the other party through different means, okay? Um, and it's interesting that, that the other thing is that um, in 40% in of um, family law cases, one or both parties will be self-represented. Mm. Okay, so there you can have a perpetrator who is conducting his own case in the court. Um, there are also cases where the perpetrator is representing themselves um, and the other party who doesn't have enough money, okay, to, to get a lawyer then has to um, defend themselves against the perpetrator to to the satisfaction of the court. Mm. Okay, it the the system incentivizes abuse. It also enables um, mm. abuse, and it does seem that judges simply um, not all judges. Okay, not all judges. There there are some good judges, but gonna, there are there'll many, be a hashtag hashtag not uh, all judges. Uh, <laughs> hashtag, hashtag not all judges. Hashtag not all lawyers. <laughs> That um, um, yeah, they, they don't they don't see it. Mm. Um, one of the cases in in my book um, involved a, a woman a woman who um, was uh, taken to court because her former partner uh, did not want her um, disagreed with the fact that she'd allowed the youngest child to participate in a music audition. Yes. Okay, Ugh. and um, and she received um, a prison sentence, which the judge uh, agreed to suspend. 
um, yeah, it, it's it's astonishing. But these things re- it, these things happen in the family court. I mean, subsequently, this case was overturned by the full court by a majority of the full court. Uh, okay, but the thing is, the harm, the distress, oh. and the financial disadvantage. Okay, the, the, the woman has already, um, the, the impact is achieved because the, the woman is financially disadvantaged um, and uh, harmed and distressed. And indeed, let's not set, uh, let's not lose sight of the child mm. um, because, um, you know, in this case, the child had actually won a music scholarship mm. um, and um, did nobody ask mm. Um you know, how, how hard did the child need to work mm. um, to, to get a music scholarship? Was this something mm. the child wanted? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, the, the, the whole, um, you know, not the, the first case and not on appeal, did, was the child considered? Yeah. Um, so um, because it was, per, you know, it was a contravention, what you call a contravention hearing, and um, the child, child's best interest is not a factor um, in, in considering contravention. Um, but um, yet we're told that the paramount principle of the law is the child's best interest. Yeah. Um, how do we get there? It's, yeah. um, it, it's, it's really... It's really quite a, a frightening uh, culture. It's a culture that silences children. It marginalises children. Um, and I, I think that um, it's in the disregard for children um, that that's where the, the most serious problems lie, mm. I, I think. Mm. Um yeah, and, and I mean, I, I really encourage people to to go out and, and buy and read the book. And yeah, there were my, my sense reading the book was the system makes women and children profoundly unsafe. Um, uh, and of course, I'm sure at times it makes makes um, fathers unsafe. But really, the strongest themes were um, mothers and and children becoming um, unsafe, and um, the the just the hyper vigilance you must um, be. Um, succumbing to as a as a mother going through this system where you're you know both the the father and the court is like this surveillance machine um, just following you and th- these these mothers who are just so scared of the um, you know the phone ringing I think you, you might you, in one of the book you spoke about a woman who just you know took a phone call and, and received some bad news and just dropped to her feet um, and yeah. yeah. It's a, it's um, because, you know, going back to you know, what I was saying earlier about, you know, reasonable excuse, mm. um, that, that as the mother, if the child is living with you, um, the child doesn't make the phone call on time for some, I mean, lots of things could happen. The child could be sick. The child could be late from school. The child could be this. The, I, I mean, you know, we all live lives. Yeah. Um, but um, the court orders the 6 o'clock phone call, the 6.15 phone call, um, to provide what's called reasonable excuse to the court. Okay. This means that the mother has to create a written log 
okay, of, of um, any uh, of, uh, you know, the reason why the child was one minute late or five minutes late or 15 minutes late or, or the call was not made that day, but they made up the call on the Thursday afterwards, uh, you, you know, and all of this sort of stuff. So you're logging and logging and logging um, to, to prove Okay, mm -hmm. that you have a reasonable excuse, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the thing is, if you get taken to court six months down the track, okay, by um, a, an abusive former partner, um, you will need to demonstrate to the court that six months ago, you had this excuse, 10 months ago, you had this excuse, yeah. three weeks ago, you had this excuse. And if you don't um, if you don't meticulously detail these things, then you've not got a case, yeah. okay? Um, and then you could, uh, and look, uh, contravention of a court order potentially carries jail time. It carries either a fine or it carries jail time. I mean, these, the, these things are treated um, seriously mm. uh, by the court and, and um, in, well, treated actually take all that back in the wrong way they're treated in the wrong way by the court mm -hmm. um and and it is frightening that uh, and i'm thinking of another case that i i think it's the one that you're referring to when you talked about the woman collapsing mm -hmm. um, and that was a serious domestic violence case as well where there had been um serial um family violence orders, including one long-range order that had extended three years. But despite that family violence order, and you don't get a three-year family violence order, you know, off, off the bat. I mean, that that's something that you require mm. considerable evidence mm. um, to, to have. And, and yet, you, you know, the family court still orders contract, uh, conduct. Um, and the family that is court... Sick. That is sick. Fails yeah. to perceive what what is happening. Um, it doesn't. Um, it yes. It, it is about this micromanagement of women and children mm. in ways that are um, macabre. I, I sometimes think, unless you're actually there in the courtroom watching these proceedings, mm. um, no one would believe you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and yet, you, you know, the reason I wrote the book in the way I did, um, you know, there were legal, re you know, you can either go with interviews or you can go usually with the court judgments. And I, I wanted to go with the court's own words mm. because um, then, you, you know, this is what the court did, this is what the court said, mm. okay? There's no ambiguity around, oh, she's just, um, this mm. is the, the woman was mentally unstable, which mm. is the, the mm. staple of arguments, mm. um, that um, these are things that the court did, these are things that judges thought um, were the right thing to do. I don't know how they got there, but they did. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and so you know, telling the stories um, in the court's words, mm. I, I think, was, was uh, is an important part of the book because it's about accountability. Mm. I, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, this is what you did, this is what you said. Um, it, it's, it's less, it, it's, it's, it can't be dismissed as in in ways that 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 other um, court reporting, I think, um, tends to be dismissed. Because we've had 
brilliant journalists like Jess Hill who, mm. who've done brilliant work mm. um, you know there's some great journalists at the ABC producing um, brilliant work and you sort of think when you read some of these stories as they come out well you, you know they've just shown you what's wrong they've just yeah. shown you what's wrong with the system they've done their job they've they've held up the mirror to the system um, and and yet somehow somehow nothing changes no. Um so it's um yeah it it is um it it's something that um i i think that people need to be aware of mm. and to um and and uh, to to keep it as an issue or to make it as an issue yeah absolutely and uh, we'll we'll move towards where we can how we can do that and some some changes that um, could be made in a second, um, but I, I, I just wanted to go down or, or take us back, us uh, go off off track a little bit, but just take us back to the fact that, you know, reading through your book, I learned that it wasn't meant to be like this. When the family law, the family court was set up in the nineteen seventies, it had it was during the Whitlam era, if I'm not uh, around that era, that that period oh. of time, and it had brought ambitions to be something different. Certainly different to what it is today, but there's been lots of re- reforms, quote unquote, um, in that intervening period, which kind of get us to where we are now. I was just wondering if you could explain explain some of that. Look, when the Family Law Act was passed by the Whitlam government, and in fact, when the Family Court was set up as an institution, it was in fact um, arguably the best family law system in the Western world. It was the most progressive. Um, In 1975, children had more rights under family law than they do today. For example, back in 1975, and Lionel Murphy was very clear about this, you know, the the court could not make orders against the wishes of a child of 14 years um, and over um, unless there were extraordinary circumstances because, you know, things always come up. Um, uh, Also, a child, um, a mature child or a young person could go to court and ask for the orders to be discharged, okay, because we don't need to regulate the conduct of people who are literally almost an adult. There was a clear understanding that children have a right to grow and as part of their growth they grow into autonomy uh, for example Um, that was all junked in the 1980s Um, there were other things that were in the family law act in fact you have to go all the way back to um, you know one of the things that flies out is money and property I mean honestly reading the senate debates is a bit sometimes feels like reading the the um, married women's property act in the um in the 19th century because you sort of go oh my gosh we really had no rights before they brought Mm. those laws in Mm. you know this idea oh yes marital property will be split Mm. um you know there's a a famous anecdote um uh, from a lawyer at the time in the early days of the court and and he's uh, summing up what his clients male clients say to him um and and that is uh, are you telling me the law says that I have to pay my wife for the pleasure of cooking my dinner. And, yeah, I know. And the lawyer says, yes, actually, that's what the law says. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So so it was progressive, okay? Mm. We've gone backwards. 
we've gone backwards, we've not gone forwards. Um, there, I think there were unforeseen things. Um, I, I think that um, in as you fast forward to the 80s, um, particularly uh, with the family court bombings, mm. you see a huge clawback by men's rights activists mm. where um and you read the newspapers at the time and it seems that um Could you explain what those were like a, a lot of people won't know what those okay. were yeah the, the the family court bombings uh, occurred in sydney um it, through the 1980s um so a judge a family court judge was um, killed, uh, assassinated on his doorstep, uh, shot dead while his uh, wife and children were in the house um, in the middle of dinner. Um, a, another judge had his house bombed while his children were in it, um, and it was very lucky that the children escaped uh, without injury. Um, another judge was uh, his uh, a bomb was uh, wired to the front door, but the judge didn't answer. His wife did, and the wife was killed. Um, and it goes on. Um, there was a bombing in a church hall um, where a member of the congregation was killed. Um, now, people at the time, they knew that, that murder is wrong, but instead of condemning the murderer, there was this whole idea in, in the newspapers of the period, what's wrong with the family court that would drive a man to such extremes? And this is literally the subtext of every article that appears. Um, there was a, you know, the, the Dean of St Andrew's Cathedral here, in, which is the in Sydney, uh, gave a sermon saying that, um, you know, good might come out of evil um, if they get rid of the court. Um, uh, so, like, hello, this was the morning after the judge's wife had been murdered. Um, Very old testament. And- Jesus. Yeah, I look, you know, it's, it's astonishing. So in some senses, it's kind of like domestic violence writ large in the, in the way that kind of victim-blaming rhetoric mm. that we have had around um, domestic abuse um, mm. and femicide and those sorts of things. But um, here the victim being blamed is the family court, mm. you know, with the female Chief Justice, Elizabeth Evatt, and, and all of those sorts of things. So the government turned around. Um, wrote to all of the men's rights groups and said, what can we do to help? Okay. So it, it's I, like... Would it be fair if, if people, just fast-forwarding, I'll, I'll sort of interrupt, but that kind of sounds like terrorism, um, you know, using political violence to achieve uh, political means to me. Absolutely. And and I think that, um, and, and you're not the only person because uh, the um, Leonard Warwick, who's the family court bomber, didn't, they never um, were able to charge him until only a few years ago. Okay. And um, when the judgment finally came down in the Supreme Court here in New South Wales, only a few years ago, um, the judge did single it out as a pl- act of political terrorism. Mm-hmm. Okay, that the, there was an acknowledgement in the judgment that this is what it was. Okay, but back at the time, um, it seemed that it was fine to respond um, to to a, a, a what is an act of terrorism and has now been defined as such um, by the court. 
um, uh, by, by saying, um, by taking the bomber's message on board, you, you know, what can we do to help? Um, so, um, and, and then you have this, this process of, of clawing back um, you know, that they're, they're um, through the turn of the century, this present century, um, a, a new sort of doctrine of the indissolubility of families was invented or the indissolubility of, of parenting mm. um, it was invented, which meant that um, as it translated into law, um, courts compelled um, uh, couples to stay together they compelled contact, even in cases of abuse, and that's they still do, you know, that this is the thing. Um, but they bring in supervised contact if um, the, the um, parent is demonstrated to be too dangerous to have unsupervised contact. So, yeah, I know. They didn't, well, what, what impact does that have on a child? Um, the 70s had a different approach in that they that, 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 um, they had this idea that, that the parties would go their separate ways. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, it was a different kind of approach, but it was also naive in some ways. People felt, people thought that if couples could get divorced quickly and easily, that um, domestic violence would disappear. And of course, it hasn't. What, mm. what has happened is that um, the vast majority, 97% of, of separating parents do not go to court in this country. Um, the cases that end up in court, though, that 3% of cases that end up in court are overwhelmingly domestic abuse cases. Okay, up to 85% domestic abuse, um, more than half with physical violence and, and serious safety concerns or serious child abuse. Um, so we have a law that's, that's, that's written for a kind of, um, I don't know, the leave it to beaver family, mm. um, not a law that is um, safeguarding the, the vulnerable children and, and vulnerable families in, in the situation um, that it should be looking at. Yeah. That is um, the 3% of cases that are overwhelmingly issues um, driven by domestic abuse. Yeah, yeah. And there's just, I mean, going through your book, um, the, the way in which those, ref those reforms over the last 30 or 40 years have um, created so many leverage points for abusers to, to, to use that system to create control. Uh, um, yeah, because they, they've widened the, the areas of dispute. They've mm. made more areas of dispute, more grounds on which you can litigate mm. rather than less grounds. Mm. Um, and, and, you, you know, and, and the, the laws are seriously um, gender gender um biased yeah i mean it seems to me like it's a classic case of um neutrally appearing laws clearly favoring one um you know even maybe that is not even neutrally appearing you might know better than me but things that on the face of it look neutral but have just radically different um outcomes for uh, for one party or one group um yeah abs absolutely and and it's um you know i think that in a sense that the law likes to think it's gender blind mm. um and you this is it's very obvious um when there are interim hearings um you, you know 
separating parents go through a series of court events mm. um, as, as they progress to final trial. And most cases don't progress to final trial unless they're profoundly serious um, or, or they, um, they have money or, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons why cases don't progress um, to, to trial. But, um, yeah, it, it does... Um, incentivize um the, the the wrong kind of um yeah it, yeah. it inflames and escalates the, the 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 behavior the adversarial system report after report has shown that the adversarial system you know the idea of this uh, sort of the the applicant and the respondent or in criminal trials you you know the prosecution and the defense um it is it's incredibly reductive in the way that it deals with family dynamics and in fact it, it it's not capable of, of dealing with the sort of the human relationships because it reduces everything to, to guilty and innocent. Mm. Um, and, and that's a funny a sort of back to the future point because Whitlam, when Whitlam and Murphy brought in the act, it was to get rid of fault, mm. okay? It's, it's no fault divorce. Mm. Um, and yet where we are is we're back at fault, we're back at blame, and we're back at this guilty and innocent sort of uh, reductive, um, this kind of reductive approach. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it is. A, I, I do think that we've gone backwards in a lot of ways, um, although certainly I don't think that everything was, um, I, you know, I'd never say that everything was rosy back in the 70s because, they're, you know, women didn't have things like economic equality. Mm. Um, they, they had uh, theoretically um, equal wages, but, but practically not. Mm. Um, but in... But in so many ways, we've we've gone backwards, um, and and um, one of the real shocks, um, I, I think, in my recent work is is particularly backwards on on children's rights. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, in, in the next podcast, we'll be talking to a young person who talks about their experience. Um, but um, Camilla and Catherine have done a wonderful job representing um, kind of the second half of the book. They talk a lot about um, about the experiences of young people and how they're uh, marginalised, silenced and made unsafe, um, seen as unreliable witnesses. But I'll, I'll leave a lot of those questions for, for the young person, but I, I recommend you read, read the book. Um, so you've canvassed, I guess, the trajectory of how we've come to now and in some ways we have been going in the wrong direction. What are some, maybe you can say their policy, maybe their um, conversational changes we need to make, but what are some of the changes that, that we need to make um, to make uh, the system safer and better for, I mean, for everyone, but in particular for, um, for mothers and children? Um, I think the first thing that we need to do is, um, is centre the family law debate on children's rights. You know, I actually think that fundamentally the worst aspects um, of the debate, the, where the debate is at, um, 
is that uh, it's always uh, this uh, polarized um, debate between sort of men's rights activists and, you know, all these nasty feminists or these crazy women. What nobody um, seems to be able to see is um, the child in the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the family law debate needs, needs to centre the lived experience of children mm-hmm. um, and the lived, lived experience of domestic abuse survivors mm-hmm. um, to understand what's, in order to understand what's wrong with the system, mm-hmm. which is also why, um, you know, there's a part of the Family Law Act called Section 121, mm. which means that a party who's been um, through court may not speak, okay, or may not be identified. Mm. But what this does is that it effectively silences lived experience. Mm. It silences uh, children's experiences. It si- silences victims' experiences. And it also means that um, the law is separated from lived experience of the law. Mm. So there's, in a sense, there's no feedback here. Okay, the law doesn't know what happens to the children who's Mm. in alleged best interests. It's acted. Mm. Okay, it's blind to this. Mm. Um, And and there are heavy penalties in a sense that when um, when Section 121 was brought in by the Whitlam government, it was very much aimed at the kind of highly uh, the tabloid reporting that surrounded divorce at, at the time mm. where, um, you know, the Sunday tabloids would have these sort of lurid um, discussions of because uh, you needed grounds, adultery or cruelty or something like that. For, for, mm. so, so there'd be sort of lurid sensationalist reporting, particularly if there was a famous celebrity mm. um, who was getting divorced. Um, and so they said no more of that. Mm. Okay. Um, but the thing is... Um, it, it no longer section one to one I think is no longer protecting uh, the the children and the parties um, that the Whitlam government sought to protect by bringing it in. Mm. It's protecting the court. Mm. It, it's preventing um, it's preventing people from talking about their their lived experience, or or it's preventing people from speaking truth to power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and looking through those laws, and it's not just the Family Law Act, but it's various other laws at the state level, the Family Law being Commonwealth. It's this complex web or just gag orders that, you know, um, young people have to, and, um, and, and um, mothers and other parents as well, have to navigate to, to tell their story and it just excludes 99% of people, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it profoundly shapes the kinds of stories that journalists can write, for example, the yeah. kinds of stories that, that, that the media can report. Mm-hmm. Um, it leads to, um, I mean, you know, some things like subjudice, contempt are, you know, legitimate. I mean, everyone has a right to fair trial and things like mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. you also need to look at the ways in which it shapes, um, say, reports of domestic violence. Violence. Um, if because you you're doing court reporting as a journalist, you have to focus on the facts um, in front of you. You're not a- allowed to say, "Oh, well, this person has a whole string of domestic violence convictions," mm. uh, because that's how juicy. So, mm. and, and while that is legitimate, I mean, in that instance, I mean, y- you know, um, it is it shapes it. It does shape the story that's that gets told. Go to the family court. Okay, 
And um, the, the lack of, of centering um, the experience of, of both um, parents and survivors um, and of children means that they these families get pathologized in, yeah. in the media. Yeah. Um, it, it means that what we um, read about in the newspapers, or in fact, what goes on trial in the courtroom is often a stereotype. Mm-hmm. It is not, um, it, it is not uh, the rounded individual. And because mm-hmm. children, um, particularly because children are not permitted um, to ha- have their views directly presented um, to the court, only their best interests. Mm. Um, I-, I think that stu- children are stereotyped um, in the trial situation um, uh, just as much as, as women, um, perhaps even and more, because profoundly mm. um, what the-, the court decides will shape the child's life. Mm. Um, you, you know, the mother will not need to go back to the violent father, but the child will be forced to. Mm. It just completely um, flies in the face of, of any uh, any logic that you think you could make, you know, um, significant life decisions about someone without hearing from them. And, and it also just fails to see young people as themselves, um, domestic violence survivors. Um, uh, you know, it's it often treats them more as property than, than, than survivors themselves as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, of course, you know, historically the law has treated children as property. I mean, that's not just uh, talking about stereotypes. That's actually talking about the way the law worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of that residu- residual kind of terminology is, is still, um, you, you know, the Act at, at a couple of points still co- talks about control of the child, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, and this sort of which is leftover terminology from, from from, you know, the 19th century and, and from, um, you, you know, it's the legacy. Mm. Um, so centering the child's experience, uh, I, I think, is incredibly important, um, yeah. which is why it's great to hear about the podcast that you're, you're going to be doing <laughs> next week. Yeah, thank you. Well, so you've, um, um, uh, and we'll, we'll, hear, we'll hear the same question and answer from, from the young person next week, but... Um, people have listened to you today. They've heard about, you know, how the family law system, you know, it's a system that's kind of, um, it was intended to do one thing at its beginning. It's doing a very different thing right now in that it's controlling women. It's making women and children unsafe. Um, and it's, you know, it's a bit of a Wild West situation um, out there. What What's one thing that you want um, a listener um, today to go away and do after hearing you talk today? I think um, I think the one thing you can do that I th- would dramatically change many things in the courts and in the law would be to write um, write to your local MP and write to the Attorney General and tell them to recognise the Convention on the Rights of the Child in Family Law. Yeah. Australia is a signatory to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. It was signed um, as a binding convention in 1990. Mm -hmm. And yet those rights have never been extended to children in family law proceedings. Mm -hmm. Um, So the one thing that I think um, would make a huge difference because everything else would follow um, from a recognition uh, of children's rights. So, yeah, write to your MP, write to the Attorney-General and tell them to recognise the Convention for the purpose of family law. 
Thank you so much, Camilla. Okay, thanks a lot, Simon. Thanks for having me.